Hello everyone. This is a quick intro, and at the end of it we will either jump straight into the episode or you will hear an ad. Um, I am testing a new format with uh, some upcoming sponsors to try and get a few more deals, get you guys a few more discounts to some cool products. And um, Anyway, there really is no need to drag this out very long. I want to say thank you as always for listening. Uh, either enjoy the episode straight away or take a listen to the ad because you're about to get a discount to some cool products. Thank you so much for listening and let's jump into it. Hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of Sleep and Relax ASMR. This episode I'm whispering This is a series we call ASM Articles. Basically, we pick a person, place, event, whatever it may be, and we learn about it together by reading the Wikipedia page. So hopefully uh, we learn something new, and in the process, after you learn something useful, maybe, probably not, then you fall asleep. which sat at the Palace of Westminster between January 7th and March 9th, 1327, was instrumental in the transfer of the English crown from King Edward II to his son, Edward III, previously Earl of Chester. Edward II had become increasingly unpopular with the English nobility, predominantly because of the excessive influence of unpopular court favorites. The patronage he devoted to them and his perceived ill-treatment of the nobility. By 1325, even his wife Isabella despised him. Toward the end of the year, she took their son, the Earl of Chester, to France, where she joined and probably entered into a relationship with a powerful and wealthy nobleman, Roger Mortimer, whom her husband had exiled. The following year, they invaded England to depose Edward II. Almost immediately, the king's resistance was beset by betrayal, and he eventually abandoned London and fled west, probably to raise an army in Wales or Ireland. He was soon captured and imprisoned. Isabella and Mortimer summoned a parliament to confer legitimacy. Their regime Westminster on the 7th of January, but little could be done in the absence of the king. <clears throat> the 14-year-old Earl of Chester was proclaimed keeper of the realm, but not yet king, and as a parliamentary deputation was sent to Edward II asking him to allow himself to be brought to Parliament, he refused and the Parliament continued. 
destruction of the church, resulting in a betrayal of his coronation oath to the people. There, these, sorry, these were known as the Articles of Accusation. The city of London was particularly aggressive in its attacks on Edward II, and its citizens may have helped to intimidate those attending Parliament into agreeing to the king's deposition, which occurred on the afternoon of January 13th. On or around January 21st, the Lord's Temporal sent another delegation to the king to inform him of his deposition, effectively giving Edward an ultimatum. If he did not agree to hand over the crown to his son, then the Lords and Parliament would give it to somebody outside the royal family. King Edward wept, but agreed to their conditions. The delegation returned to London, and Edward's, Edward II's son was proclaimed King Edward III immediately. He was crowned on February 1st, 1327. In the aftermath of the parliamentary session, his father remained in prison, being moved around to prevent attempted rescues. He died, presumed killed, in September the same year, probably on Mortimer's orders. Crises continued for Mortimer and Isabella, who were de facto rulers of the country, partly because of Mortimer's own greed, mismanagement, and mishandling of the new king. Edward III led a coup d'etat against Mortimer in 1330, overthrew him, and began his personal rule. Background King Edward II of England had court favorites who were unpopular with his nobility, such as Piers Gaveston and Hugh Dispenser the Younger. Gaveston was killed during an earlier noble rebellion against Edward in 1312, and Dispenser was hated by the English nobility. Edward was also unpopular with the common people, due to his repeated demands from them for unpaid military service in Scotland. None of his campaigns there were successful, and this led to a further decline in his popularity, particularly with the nobility. His image was further diminished in 1322, when he executed his cousin, Thomas, Earl of Lancaster, and confiscated the Lancaster, the Lancaster Estates. Historian Chris Gibbon Wilson has written how, by 1325, the nobility believed that, quote, no, land no landholder could feel safe, quote, under the regime. The distrust of Edward was shared by his wife, Queen Isabella, who believed Dispenser responsible for poisoning the king's mind against her. In September 1324, she had been publicly humiliated when the government declared her an enemy alien, and the king had immediately repossessed her estates, probably at the urging of Dispenser. Edward also disbanded her retinue. Edward had already been threatened with deposition on two previous occasions, in 1312 and 1321. Historians agree that hostility towards Edward was universal. W.H. Dunham and C.T. Wood ascribe this to Edward's cruelty and personal faults, suggesting that very few, not even his half-brothers or his son, seemed to care about the wretched man. 
was not the community of the realm, but the quarrel of the Earl of Lancaster, illustrating how the struggle was still a factional one with baronial politics, whatever cloak it may have appeared to possess as a reform movement. By November 20th, 1326, the Bishop of Hereford had retrieved the great seal from the king and delivered it to Prince Edward. He can now be announced as his father's heir apparent. Although at this stage it might have still been possible for Edward II to remain king, says Omrod, the writing was on the wall. A document issued by Isabella and her son at this time described their respective positions. Thus, Isabel, by the grace of God, Queen of England, Lady of Ireland, Countess of Ponthew and Lee, Edward, eldest son of a noble king, England, Edward of England, sorry, Duke of Gascony, Earl of Chester, of Ponthew, of Montreal, DNA NC 13746, Summoning of Parliament, Isabella, Mortimer, and the Lords arrived in London on January 4th, 1327. In response to the previous year's spate of murders, Londoners had been forbidden to bear arms, and two days later, all citizens had sworn an oath to keep the peace. Parliament met on January 17th to consider the state of the realm. Now the king was incarcerated. It had originally been summoned by Isabella and the prince in the name of the king on October 28th, the previous year. Parliament had been intended to assemble on December 14th, 1326, but on December 3rd, still in the name of the king, further writs were issued deferring the sitting until early next year. This, it was implied, was due to the king being abroad rather than imprisoned. Because of this, Parliament would have to be held before the Queen and Prince Edward. The history of Parliament Trust has described this legality of the writs as being highly questionable, and C.T. Wood called the sitting a show of pseudo-parliamentary regularity, stage managed by Mortimer and Thomas Lord Wake. For Isabella solution to a constitutional problem because at some point their position would likely be challenged legally. Thus, suggests Ormrod, they had to enforce a solution favorable to Mortimer and the Queen by any means they could. Contemporaries were uncertain as to the legality of Isabel's parliament. Edward II was still king, although in official documents this was only with alongside his most beloved consort, Isabella, Queen of England, and his firstborn son, Keeper of the Kingdom, in what Bill Bradford called as a nominal presidency. King Edward was said to be abroad when in reality he was imprisoned in Kenilworth Castle. It was maintained that he desired a colloquium and a tractatum conference and consultation.
words upon various affairs touching himself and the estate of the kingdom, hence the holding of parliament. Supposedly it was Edward II himself who postponed the first sitting until January for certain necessary causes and utilities, presumably at the behest of the Queen and Mortimer. A priority for the new regime was deciding what to do with Edward II. Mortimer considered holding a state trial for treason in the expectation of a guilty verdict and a death sentence. He and other lords discussed the matter at Isabella's Wallingford, Wallingford Castle just after Christmas for no agreement. The lords temporal affirmed that Edward had failed his country so gravely that only his death could heal it. The attending bishops, on the other hand, held that whatever his faults, he had been anointed king by God. This presented Isabella and Mortimer with two problems. First, the bishops' arguments would be popularly understood as risking the wrath of God. Second, public trials always bring the danger of an unintended verdict, particularly as it seems like a broad body of public opinion doubted whether an anointed king could even commit treason. <coughs> Such a result would mean not only Edward's release, but his restoration to the throne. Mortimer and Isabella sought to avoid a trial, and yet keep Edward II imprisoned for life. The king's imprisonment, officially by his son, had, been be had become public knowledge, and Isabella and Mortimer's hand was forced, as the arguments for Prince Edward being named Keeper of the Kingdom were now groundless, as the king had clearly returned to his realm one way. sat since November 1325th. Only 26 of the 46 barons who had been summoned on it in October 1326 for the December Parliament were then also summoned to that of January 1327, and six of those had never received summons under Edward II at all. Officially the investigator, the instigators of the Parliament were the bishops of Hereford and Winchester, Roger Mortimer and Thomas Wake. Isabella almost certainly played a background role. They summoned as Lord Spiritual as Lord's Spiritual the Archbishop of Canterbury and fifteen English and four Welsh bishops, as well as nineteen abbots. <coughs> the Lord's Temporal were represented by the Earls of Norfolk, Kent, Lancaster, Surrey, Oxford, Athol, and Hereford. 47 barons, 23 royal justices, and several knights and burgesses, burgesses royal, were summoned from the shires. They may well have been encouraged, such as Medicott, by the wages to be paid to those attending, the handsome sum of four shillings a day for a knight and two for a burgess. consistent with previous assemblies, being dominated by lords reliant on a support of commons. It differed, though, in greater than usual influence that outsiders and commoners had, such as 
Zoos from London. The January through February part was geographically broader too, as it contained unelected members from Bury, St. Edmunds, and St. Albans, says Maddicott. Says Maddicott, those who planned the deposition reached out in Parliament to those who had no right to be there. And, says Dodd, the rebels deliberately made Parliament center stage to their plans. Parliament assembled. The King's absence. Before Parliament met, the Lords had sent Adam Orleton, Bishop of Hereford, and William Trussell, Kenilworth, to see the King, with the intention of persuading Edward to return with them and attend Parliament. They failed in the mission. Edward finally refused and roundly pressed them. The envoys returned to Westminster on January 12th, by which time Parliament had been sitting five days. It was felt that nothing could be done until the King had arrived. Historically, Parliament could only pass statutes with the monarch present. Edward VII's refusal to attend failed to prevent the Parliament from taking place the first time this had ever happened. Constitutional Crisis The various titles bestowed on a younger Edward at the end of 1326, which acknowledged his unique position in government while avoiding calling him king, reflected an underlying constitutional crisis of which contemporaries were keenly aware. The fundamental question was how the crown was transferred between two living kings, a situation which had never risen before. Valente has described how this upset the accepted order of things the sacrosanctity of kingship and lacked clear legality or established process. Contemporaries were also uncertain as to whether Edward II had abdicated or was being deposed. On October 26, it had been recorded in the close roll that Edward had left or abandoned his kingdom and his absence enabled Isabella and Mortimer to rule. They could legitimately argue <coughs> excuse me, son governor of the kingdom in his father's stead. They also said Edward II held Parliament in contempt by calling it a treasonous assembly and insulted those attending it as traitors. It is unknown whether the king did in fact say or believe this, but it certainly suited Isabella and Mortimer for Parliament to think so. Proceedings of Monday, January 12th. Consider its next step. Bishop Orleton, emphasizing Isabella's fear of the king, asked the assembled lords whom they would prefer to rule, Edward or his son. The response was sluggish, with no rush to either depose or acclaim. Deposition had been raised too suddenly for many members to stomach. The king was still not entirely friendless, and indeed had been described by Paul Dryper as casting an ominous shadow over the proceedings. Proceedings on January 13th, Tuesday. Whether Edward II resigned his throne or was forced from it, under pressure, the crown legally changed hands on January 13th with the support, it was recorded, of all the baronage of the land. (laughs) 
During the sermons, the articles of deposition were officially presented to the assembly, in contrast to the elaborate and floridly hyperbolic accusations previously launched at the dispensers. This was a relatively simple document. The king was accused of being incapable of fair rule, of indulging false counselors, preferring his own amendments to good government, neglecting England and losing Scotland dilapidating the church and imprisoning the clergy, and all in all being a fundamental breach of the coronation oath he had made to his subjects, all of which the rebels claimed was so well known as to be undeniable. The articles accused Edward's favorites of tyranny, although now the king himself, whom they described as incorrigible, without the hope of reform. January 13th reiterated the articles of accusation and all concluded by offering Prince Edward as king if the people approved him. The crown outside, which included a large company of unruly Londoners, says Valente, had been whipped into such fervor by dramatic outcries at appropriate points in the orations from Thomas Wake, who repeatedly rose and demanded the assembly whether they agreed with each speaker. Do you agree? Do the people of the country agree? exhortations, arms outstretched, as best which he cried, I see for myself that ye shall reign no more, combined with the intimidating mob led to tumultuous responses of let it be done, let it be done. Edward III was proclaimed king. At the end of the day, said Valente, the electio of the magnates received the acclamatio of populi, fiat. Proceedings drew to a close with a chorus of Gloria Laus et Honor perhaps oaths of homage from the lords to the new king. The king's response. One final action remained to be taken. The ex-king in Kenilworth had been had to be informed that his subjects had chosen to withdraw their allegiance from him. A delegation was organized to take the news. The delegates were the Bishop of Ely, Hereford, and London, and around 30 laymen. not composed solely of parliamentarians, but there were enough of them in it to appear parliamentarian. Its size had also been added advantage of spreading collective responsibility far more broadly than would have happened in a small group. They left on or shortly after Thursday, January 15th, and arrived in Kenilworth by either January 21st or 22nd, when William Trussell asked for the king to be brought to them in the name of Parliament. in a black gown and under the Earl of Lancaster's escort was brought to the Great Hall 
Jesuits equivocated at first, adulterating the word of truth before coming to the point. Edward was afforded the choice of resigning in favor of the Earl of Chester and being provided for according his rank or of being deposed. This it was emphasized clearly to the throne being offered to someone not of royal blood, but politically experienced, clearly referring to Mortimer. The king protested mildly and wept, fainting at one point. According to Worldly's later report, Edward claimed he had always followed the guidance of his nobles, but regretted any harm he had done. The delegation left Kenilworth for London on January 22nd. Their news preceded them. By the time they reached Westminster, around January 25th, Edward III was already officially referred to as king, and his peace had been proclaimed at St. Paul's Cathedral on the 24th. Edward III's reign was as dated from January 25th through June 27th. Behind the scenes, though, discussions must have begun on the thorny question of what to do with his predecessor, who still had not had any judgment or parliamentary passed upon him. Subsequent events and aftermath. Edward, Earl of Chester's political education was deliberately accelerated by the tutelage of advisors such as William of Padua and Walter de Melamed. Still a minor, Edward III was owned, was crowned at Westminster Abbey on February 1st, 1327. Isabella gained an annual income of 20,000 marks, 13,333 euros or pounds, I guess pounds or quid, I don't, I don't really know European currency. She achieved this by, the requ by requesting the return of her dower, which her husband had confiscated. It was returned to her substantially augmented. Uh, let's see here. Okay. When recalled, Parliament returns returned to its usual business and heard a large number, 42, of petitions from their community. These not only included the political and often lengthy petitions related directly to the deposition, but a similar number coming from the clergy in the city of London. This was the greatest number of petitions to have been summoned by the Commons in the history of Parliament. Their requests ranged from confirmation of the acts against the dispensers and those in favor of Thomas of Lancaster to the reconfirmation of the Magna Carta. The Commons, would, too, were concerned for the restoration of law and order, and one of their petitions called for the immediate appointment of wide-ranging keepers of the peace who could, be, who could personally put men on trial. Their request was agreed by the King's Council. The return to normal parliamentary business demonstrated it was hoped both the regime's legitimacy and its ability to repair the injustices of the previous reign. Most of the petitions were accepted, resulting in 17 statute, statute articles, which indicates how keen Isabella and Mortimer were to placate the commons. When Parliament finally dissolved on March 9th, 20, 1327, it had been the second longest at 71 days of the century to date. 
as always for listening.